I could see other titles that just simply don't have a space to compete in the 2021 market because the, you know, the big picture here that we all, I think very, very much are aware of is once theaters are open and once big movies are coming out, there are a lot of movies that are going to be fighting for screen space and for Mm -hmm. eyeballs and for marketing dollars. I mean, (laughs) right. That too, which just as important as any of those other factors. So there will be, I think a lot of those legacy titles will probably end up on streaming, but by the same token, you know, you get to next fall and I see, you know, maybe a normal award season kind of sort of coming back, maybe even with even more content. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I'm joined this week by Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro magazine, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst over at Box Office Pro. This is basically the either the last or the next to the last episode that we're going to record this year, which is kind of wild because we... As we've mentioned before, we started planning this podcast just before COVID hit, and now we are certainly not at the end of COVID, but at the very least, we're at the end of 2020, and it it kind of feels like we're escaping alive, barely. You know, not to be glib about this, because this has been an insanely difficult year for everyone, some people far more than others, including many exhibitors on every level. Throughout this year, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre poster, the who will survive and what will be left of them, keeps haunting me, really. It keeps coming back to me, like not as a gag, but as an actual thing. Like I never in my lifetime thought that a silly, like kind of ridiculous tagline like that would make sense in a real context. And yet, here we are. I don't know. I'm still coming to grips with it, as I imagine. I don't know. How about the three of you? For me, it's it's, it's the who will survive. It's the not not knowing. I mean, yeah. That that's the most. I mean, even as we exit 2020, um, we're still just beginning to see the effects of some of the decisions that have been been made, and then some of the things that weren't decisions but were just consequences of of, of a deadly pandemic. We're just at the beginning of this still, I feel like. Maybe that's my my You're probably my right. fatalism coming forward. I don't think it's fatalistic. I think there's a lot left to deal with and a lot left to maybe even endure as overwhelming as that sounds. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's been a very, very dark time, as you guys know. I'm I'm not sure how it's gonna be at the other end of this, but that's uh that's for us to sort of figure out piece by piece. Yeah. You know, appropriately that's really what we're going to start talking about today as we discuss the ramifications of everything that's happened from Warner Brothers and Disney over the last couple of weeks. Before we do that, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by QSC, and QSC announces the expansion of the Q-SYS ecosystem for audio, video, and control with the new cost-effective Core Nano and Core 8 Flex processors. Far beyond a conventional cinema processor, Q-SYS is a complete ecosystem that allows you to control and monitor audio and video content delivery just about anywhere throughout the cinema complex. Visit qsc.com slash podcast for more information. That once again is qsc.com slash podcast. So now, Rebecca, let's start by rolling back a couple of weeks to mm-hmm. Warner Brothers' announcement that 2021, you know, we knew this was beginning with Wonder Woman for this year, but that in 2021, their entire 17-movie slate is going to go day and date on 
HBO Max and in movie theaters, at least in the United States. In other territories, the plan is going to roll out slightly differently. Last week, we heard on this subject from John Fithian, and uh, this week, you'll be hearing from the the less authoritative <laughs> quartet of people you're listening to now. But that said, there is a lot to break down still in the Warner Brothers decision and in the reactions that other people have had to the Warner Brothers decision since it was announced, I think, two weeks back at this point. So I know that last week we had already heard Christopher Nolan, one of the premier prime directors uh, in the Warner Brothers stable, uh, spoke about Warner Brothers' decision to move its entire 21 slate day and date on, on theatrical and HBO Max. And and Russ, I really like what you did last last week on the live session, just plucking out some of the words he used. <laughs> he was, uh, suffice to say, not pleased with his, uh, his, his typically favorite studio. He was not pleased at all. And he has, he has since written at least one more thing where he talked about the below the line effect. The unions, the unions yeah. And the idea that, hey, you know, a lot of above the line people, i.e. producers, directors, writers, lead actors are probably going to be okay, but that this potentially really bones below the line people on residuals because as far as we know, the residual structure hasn't really been figured out. There's no way to know if it has been. It's a thing that Warner Brothers hasn't exactly been forthcoming on, but certainly if they didn't tell filmmakers that this was happening, there wasn't time to figure out a new residual deal structure. So it's not a leap to think that Nolan is on point, at least on that front. So following from that, uh, the Directors Guild of America, the DGA, has called the release plan unacceptable and, quote, contrary to both the longstanding relationship between the DGA and Warner Brothers and explicit representations made by senior execs to the DGA on this very issue, which is to say the DGA thinks that Warner Brothers had told them, no, we're not going to do this, and then they went ahead and did it. And the president of CAA, one of the biggest talent agencies, said that they were blindsided and also called it entirely unacceptable to CAA and the clients. Director Denis Veneuve, who is behind uh, my most anticipated movie, Dune, uh, also <laughs> blasted Warner Brothers in an open letter that was published, I believe, in Variety. And that, of course, leads one to wonder, you know, Dune was planned as a two-part adaptation of the first novel by Frank Herbert, the first Dune novel, that is. And now you got to wonder if Veneuve remains, you know, down the road as angry as he is now, presumably yeah. he is not going to make that second movie or I guess not presumably, but let's say there's reason to question whether or not he will make that second movie. And that opens up a whole bunch of other questions. I think the short version is nobody's happy. Zack Snyder, another director who's who's in in the Warner Brothers stable, is is in the DC universe, one of their most prominent directors, and you know just in terms of finances, his response has been the most positive, and his response was a very diplomatic. Well, it just sounds like it was maybe well intentioned, but they didn't think out the ramifications of it. Like that's the most sympathetic to Warner Brothers response that, that I have seen from a director. I, I would modulate that. Steven Soderbergh also came out not exactly uh, backing Warner Brothers, but basically saying like, hey, when you really look at the nuts and bolts of this, it seems like it was unavoidable and maybe this is the best decision they can make. Now, Snyder is interesting because, of course, his own director's cut of Justice League, which is now supposed to be like a four-hour miniseries epic or something after doing extensive additional shooting and reworking, 
that was going to be HBO Max only beginning, I think, in January of next year. And now, evidently, according to Snyder, it will get a theatrical release of some sort. So in a way, Snyder's getting something that maybe wasn't on the table for him beforehand, which is his director's vision for which fans extensively campaigned on movie screens instead of solely on HBO Max. And as you guys know, it's it's super confusing right now where we go from what are very clearly theatrical movies to just this gray line of content where you don't really know what's what and what's optimized to which platform. I'm curious to see, as you note, with this Zack Snyder Justice League re-release, if we'll end up seeing content that was originally meant for HBO Max sneak into a theatrical release. I know there was a lot of anticipation from movie theaters uh, at a certain point during the run of Game of Thrones, for example. Huge production values. You could say that's a very cinematic series. I couldn't sit through a single episode, but a lot of people did. God bless them. Uh, I watched them all. (laughs) Is that something that can uh, now be accessible for cinemas? So that gray line may end up coming in with a couple of positives we're not really looking at yet. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now, Rebecca, have you charted how like circuits have responded to this overall? So we have uh, we have seen responses, official responses from AMC, Cineworld Regal, and and Cinemark, and kind of following what Daniel was talking about this sort of this gray line, this uncertainty. Um, none of the statements from any of those chains were specifically saying we're not going to screen Warner Brothers content. They didn't, they weren't aggressive. They weren't, they were pretty vague in, in expressing a sense of, uh, let's say, concern and dissatisfaction with the proceedings. So two kind of key points came up from those statements from AMC, Regal, and, and, and Cinemark, three of the, the three largest uh, circuits in the United States. A, Basically, Warner Brothers is acting like this conversation is over, but this conversation is not over. We're still going to be talking with them. We're still going to be making deals. We're still going to be looking at this on a film-by-film basis. Cinemark specifically said, like, you know, we're still booking films. We're still we're still going to talk with Warner Brothers about how this process is is going to unfold. The, the second point that that AMC and and Regal both spoke to is something that um, has has been a common response to Warner Brothers' decision, and, and is something that Fithian spoke on, which is we have a vaccine rolling out. Like within the next couple months, you know, it's not like we're going to get into into the fall and winter and not have any successful films this year. So. Doing this for the entirety of 2021 is premature. On the independent side, the Independent Cinema Association, they came out in support of Warner Brothers' uh, Wonder Woman decision. And then when Warner Brothers expanded that to all of, of 2021, they issued another statement basically saying, we are very disappointed at this. It's, it's really going to mess with our members. Mm. That makes sense. And since then, uh, Daniel, we've also had a response from CMX, which is a, a top 10 cinema in the United States. And, and uh, you know, what was in, in that statement? Because it was actually uh, pretty interesting and a lot less vague than what we were seeing uh, from, from some of their exhibitor partners. Yeah, I, I, it's one of those things where usually when a big piece of news like this with such financial implications comes down, we all have a hard time getting any press statement from any large company, right? Whether it's a studio or an exhibitor, everyone's kind of cautious. They want to take a couple of days to reassess things. So it it was very refreshing getting uh, an open letter from the CFO of CMX Cinemas, basically just going into detail on 
how this affects uh, cinemas. And I'm going to be reading or paraphrasing parts of that open letter right now real fast. You can read it in its entirety over at boxofficepro.com. So Luis Castellazo, the CFO of CMX, writes, uh, over the past decades, studios have required movie theater chains to pay a higher and higher share of each movie ticket sold, commonly referred to as a film rental. To illustrate this, the share of film rental in the U.S. has increased from approximately 27% in 1970 to 57% in 2019. The average ticket price in the U.S. is $9. And of course, this is me talking now. That $9 ticket price is the average ticket price, not the average ticket price in a major city like New York. And of course, the the premium screenings come at a higher ticket price. So just a little caveat to that $9 yeah. that Luis is If quoting. movie ticket prices were $9 in New York, I would be real pleased about that. That'd be, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> that'd be great. But go, going back to, to Luis's statement, uh, with an average ticket price of approximately $9 in the United States, five of those dollars go to the studios as the film rental. In other words, movie theaters earn an estimated $4 per ticket at the box office of which approximately $2 covers labor and approximately $2 goes to the landlord. That basically leaves cinemas with the earnings of popcorn, candy, beverages, and food items to cover operating expenses and realize a return on its investment. Typically, the investment in a movie theater is much higher than investment for a restaurant or a bar. Now, if studios show their movies on their own streaming platforms at the same time as in theaters, Naturally, attendance in theaters will suffer and revenues will shrink. An analysis by CMX Cinemas shows that attendance in theaters will be reduced by at least 30% in the opening weeks, and therefore film rental should be back to approximately 27% or less in order to ensure actual theater profitability and have that be unaffected. So how can an industry survive if a large percentage of its attendance and profit vanishes? At CMX Cinemas, we believe that film rental should be reduced from the current 57%. If the window, or the number of days between a theatrical release and a streaming release, is drastically reduced or eliminated. If there were a 50% attendance loss, it would require theaters to pay a 7% film rental to maintain profitability. Studios would compensate for the film rental reduction via their streaming platform fees. And that is a excerpt of this open letter by CMX Cinema's CFO, Luis Castellazo, going over the impact to this financial model that movie theaters have that is already affected with reduced capacity due to COVID measures and significantly less product in theaters. Part of this whole conversation is that the shift in windowing isn't limited to only Universal or Warner Brothers. All four of us stayed up for the four-hour-plus marathon session that was the Disney Ooh. Investor Day, where Disney announced its pivot to streaming. And, uh, well, I think it was mixed news, guys. My first reaction to the big Disney D-Day of uh, we're going to streaming is that the theatrical exclusivity window, when it applies to Disney, isn't dead. Ellipsis question mark? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, the ellipsis yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a complicated uh, reaction. At least we know that they're taking a title by title approach 
looking at the calendar. Sean, uh, let's hear from you. What were your initial reactions to the Disney announcements that we heard from last week? Well, I think you summed it up best. And really, I think the thought in everyone's mind, at least that's working in this industry, is that Yes, there, there's a lot of ambiguity left from what they announced, but they still committed to a lot of theatrical releases and they handled this in the way that I think many would have preferred other studios handled it. And I think looking at the content, it just it makes sense that they are focusing on streaming because they're a smart enough studio that they know their audience and they know that the, the theatrical market is mature. So of course, streaming being this growing sector is going to be their priority right now. But I think I think we kind of see a lot of headlines in the media, particularly entertainment media, that interprets that as them or any studio ignoring theaters. But it kind of misses the forest for the trees. So to me, I think what Disney did last week reaffirmed, granted, we're talking 20% of their content that they discussed is for theaters, but it's a big 20%. I mean, they're the captains at the moment. Well, you talk about you know, Warner Brothers, by the numbers, you're talking about 17 features going day and date. And 17 features is a huge slate for a modern studio. You look at the schedule that Disney sent out in the wake of their investor day, and their 2021 theatrical schedule is 20 movies. Granted, that's Disney, Pixar, Fox, I guess not Lucasfilm, but that's, you know, effectively three big sub studios combined, but that's still 20 movies theatrically, which is not insignificant. Like that's a big deal, especially since three of them are Marvel movies and a couple of others are pretty big uh, Disney titles. So I came out of that thing thinking I went in ready for total doom and gloom and I came out, maybe I'm just sort of uh, shocked by everything that's going on, but feeling like, wow, okay, that was not nearly as bad as I expected it to be. Bob Chapik is saying, he's specifically calling out, movie theaters made $13 billion for us last year. And of course, paraphrasing, but I think going with the spirit of it, we would be stupid to ignore that. I mean, the only film that they really committed to shifting day and date was uh, Ryan the Last Dragon, uh, which is now day and date um, theatrical and Disney Plus for a premium 30 bucks like Mulan. And Bob Chapik specifically says, like, he, they're pulling an anti Warner Brothers, basically, of we're going to see how this goes and then make a decision on the rest of the slate. So, not to say that things couldn't be pushed, you know, PDOD later on, but like, he's going to see how it goes with Raya first. Right. And I think that Raya move is, is important because it not only allows them to test the, the window for, for that, but it also allows them to test the waters in terms of how audiences are feeling by spring going to theaters because there will be some people that want to go see that in a theater so it's kind of a two birds with one stone at least with regard to that movie and what we also saw from disney was an expansion of what they have already been doing what they'd already planned to do what we already knew they were going to do which is create a tightly bound structure that bounces back and forth between theatrical and streaming and you see this explicitly with the marvel titles where you know it's like you've got a couple of the disney plus marvel streaming shows that are explicitly related to features that already exist and you know they're going to introduce characters which are going to show up in other theatrical features which will come out in 21 or 22 they're trying to build a bridge between those two distribution structures and to me that is a, not a surprise, but it's also seems like in the current market and the current environment seems like a really solid way to build 
an audience on both sides of the table. You know, you've got theatrical and you've got streaming and they're trying to serve both of them. And they're trying to serve themselves ultimately, obviously, but they're not cutting theatrical out of the picture. I did have a question for you, Sean. One of one of the things that was breezed right by in the Disney Investor Investor Day, like a five percent of the time they devoted to, to Star Wars or Marvel, was kind of a, a very brief mention that hey, like twentieth century and Searchlight Studios, they're going to start some of their content is, is going to start going on Hulu. No specifics as to you know if, if it's acquired content or if they're producing content or if it's content that is already you know in the can. But interestingly, you know. Disney has updated their release calendars several times over the past few days. And I think the two kind of prominent supposed to be soon, you know, films that remain on set are two searchlight titles, the horror film Antlers by Scott Cooper and and Wes Anderson's French Dispatch. Are you reading anything into that? Or do you think it's too soon to kind of extrapolate from that maybe what Disney plans to do with their legacy brands. And, and, and I mean, I, I, I just keep thinking to how well Wes Anderson films do for art house and independent cinemas. I just was wondering if I could get your take on that. I do think it is a little early to know for sure. I mean, they do have, they scheduled Nomadland for a theatrical oh. release in February, but that we just learned that what today, yeah. I believe uh, Tuesday. So yeah, I, 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 I think there's no question that we're going to see some of those legacy brands move to streaming because those are the kinds of movies that, you know, I think Wes Anderson being an exception, like you pointed out, he has a, a strong following and his films do well theatrically. I would be surprised if his film didn't have any theatrical release at all, but I could see other titles that just simply don't have a space to compete in the 2021 market because the, you know, the big picture here that we all, I think, very very much are aware of is once theaters are open and once big movies are coming out, there are a lot of movies that are going to be fighting for screen space and for mm -hmm. eyeballs and for marketing dollars. I mean, <laughs> right. That too, which <laughs> just as important as any of those other factors. So there will be, I think a lot of those legacy titles will probably end up on streaming, but by the same token, you know, you get to next fall and I, I see, you know, maybe a normal award season kind of sort of coming back, maybe even with even more content. Meanwhile, the and now I did have to duck out of uh, the last hour or so of the Disney presentation because it was time to feed my child and put him to bed. But I didn't hear about any mention of Avatar, which uh, was pushed in July, I think, was pushed from a December 21 to a December 22 date, that being Avatar 2, the first of three, I think three planned Avatar sequels. Now Avatar 2 is on the schedule that Disney sent out, but it's kind of interesting to me that it didn't even merit a mention uh, as far as I know during that, that entire investor talk. That thing you mentioned about Avatar, Russ, I think is a, is a concern because this was a blue chip IP a decade ago. Yes. This was probably the hottest title in the market with the most popular filmmaker on the market. And in 10 years, We've had it take a massive backseat to the MCU uh, in terms of popular appeal. I don't see anyone dressing up as an Avatar character in, in Halloween, which is, you know, as, as an adult without kids is basically how I gauge what is hitting <laughs> in the culture. Right. Uh, I, I don't see lunchboxes or, or toys in av from Avatar. This is an IP that has been completely, I think, forgotten by a large segment of the audience, an entire generation, 
it's going to be very difficult to revive interest in that. I'm less concerned in what happens to Avatar 2 as much as I'm more concerned in what did I miss from James Cameron over the last decade? You know, would I would I trade in that Avatar 2 for two or three movies that I could have seen instead? I guess that's what you just got to expect or what you have to accept as part of the James Cameron package. And I'm not even the biggest Cameron fan. Obviously, he's made movies that I like. You know, you got to respect the stuff that he's done. But I will say everyone always counts James Cameron out, you know, before Titanic. Mm -hmm. Titanic, uh, the cost overruns were crazy. His digital ambitions were too big, uh, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things. The movie's going to be a disaster. Nobody cares. Biggest movie of all time at the point, you know? Avatar, same thing. Everybody expected Avatar to be a disaster. Doom and Gloom prophesized for that movie. Absolutely giant picture. Now, of course, it rode that initial wave of 3D, and there's no question that Avatar got a bump from 3D. Can that happen again? I don't know, but we've multiple times we've seen expectations that Cameron was going to fail, and multiple times he has not just bucked those expectations, but he has absolutely obliterated them. So I personally, I don't have a whole lot of interest in Avatar 2, but I also haven't seen anything from it. So who knows? Maybe in a year we start seeing actual footage from Avatar 2 and it looks like the most incredible thing and and that's all we need to see is that stuff that says, oh yeah, obviously I've got to go see this movie. I mean, I'm looking forward to the new Star Wars's Star Star Wars's Star, Star Wars, Wars I I think it's Wars I. Star Wars I. Wars. <laughs> <Yeah>. Star Wars. <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think it was fascinating that they didn't mention Avatar or James Cameron at all. But, you know, you know it, I think on one hand, now they have to in essentially reintroduce the franchise all over again. But I think at the same time, after a year and a half of people not going to movies, maybe that helps Avatar 2 in some way because it will, it's been absent for so long. It kind of has this chance to reinvent itself. And to your point, Russ, James Cameron has a knack for either beating expectations or just surprising people. Well, can I, can I ask before we move on to the depressing topic of Q1 2021, um, not, not to feed into the, 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 the Disney machine, but what upcoming project was announced there that was, everyone was most excited for. Ooh. I mean, I for me, it's the Patty Jenkins Rogue Squadron movie, like dog World War II dog fighting in space. And and I, you know, yep. I'll admit, like I, for any of those listening who didn't see it, uh, Patty Jenkins, who directed the two Wonder Woman movies uh, most recently, she released this video that might only be on Twitter, maybe it's also on Instagram, where basically she's talking about how her father was a pilot and how her entire life she's wanted to make a movie that sort of combined her interests of you know. The the respect and the admiration for her father's work with her love of movies and has never had the opportunity to do so until now. And she's saying this while she's like driven her car onto the tarmac at some sort of airfield. She's like, she like skateboarding. She rollerblades into the car. Uh, yeah. She doesn't drive the car. She rollerblades into the car, like, like sits in the back and is clearly putting on a suit of some sort while she's talking. Uh, and then she reveals it to be like a, you know, a star Wars, like an X-wing fighter pilot. And as she walks off, she walks off towards an X-wing, which is parked on the tarmac. And it's very effective. It's it, like, it's a very oh, smart man. piece of little mini filmmaking. And I immediately thought like, okay, yeah, I want to see this movie. <laughs> I wonder what Warner brother, I mean, now Patty Jenkins, not, not to, not to read too much into the tea leaves of, you know, 
we were just discussing, oh, all these directors are ticked off at Warner Brothers. And now Patty Jenkins has left Warner Brothers to go to Disney. Like, I don't think the timing works out for that. No, I mean, clearly, clearly she made this Disney deal ages ago. Yeah, this is nothing new. But it is interesting. Well, it's interesting because as she's talking about this, she's made two Wonder Woman movies. You expect some sort of invisible jet reveal there or something. And uh, and then it turns out to be this this Star Wars movie, which is it's a double twist right there in front of you. Well, she she walked past it to go to the X-Wing. Anyway, the whole thing works. Sean and Daniel, how about how about you guys? What were your uh, nothing? I everything. I mean, uh, like I'm everybody here, I think, knows I'm a pretty big nerd when it comes to Marvel and Star Wars. So like turning off like the professional part of my brain during that. I just kind of treated it as like their Comic-Con for this year and seeing them talk about all these Marvel series and their Star Wars expansions. I mean, some of them are some of them will work. Some of them won't. Can't talk today. I mean, yeah, I think Rogue Squadron, Loki, I think looks like a great series for Disney Plus. A, a lot of that stuff. I can't even remember half half of it. There was a lot. Sean, looking at what we have in that very difficult first quarter as the vaccine slowly starts to roll out, but still hasn't had its effect in society yet. What titles in that first quarter can help cinemas in the most difficult part of the recovery? Well, I think it will start with Wonder Woman on some level. We all know the the asterisks that will come with that being on, on HBO, but I think there will still be some people that choose to go see it in theaters in you know January. It's pretty slim at that point. I, there are mostly a lot of a lot of films similar to what we've seen come out so far, but also studios like MGM, United Artists, Open Road are, are you know sticking with theaters and putting new content out there. So there, we'll probably see a lot more of those. I hate to say lower profile films, but I mean relative to what the, the the industry needs right now, that's just kind of what they are. But it'll probably be February, I would say mid February, before we really get to a point where. You know, hopefully we see some impact, positive impact of the vaccine. Universal has a, a thriller called Nobody starring Bob Odenkirk coming out. That's kind of described as like a John Wick uh, sort of film. Ooh, Bob Odenkirk in a John Wick shoot him up. That sounds amazing. It's another, it sounds it's another like he's a disgruntled man and he's going to fight the society that ignores him yeah. kind of thing. So from Nobody, that's late February. You know, by that point, we're we're getting closer to spring. There's a, a Billy Holiday movie also in late February uh, from Paramount. And then you get into that Raya and the Last Dragon point on the calendar in early March and the King's Man in March, uh, the, pre, the Sopranos prequel. Supposedly, Sony has Morbius, another comic book title in late mid-March. I would be surprised if that sticks to the date, but it's still there for now. Uh, then the Boss Baby sequel, and then at that point, Second quarter is over and you're into Bond territory in early April, hopefully, uh, if that stays. So it's, you know, look, January is going to be rough. Most of February is going to be rough. But I think once we kind of get to that that mid to late first quarter, we will hopefully see not only movies sticking with their release dates, but a, a more reliable calendar forming. I mean, hopefully after Raya comes out day and date in March, I mean, that's after that is the point at which I feel like Disney finally pulls the trigger either way on theatrical exclusivity. And obviously all of this comes with the asterisk of uncertainty about how the vaccine rollout is going to work. We now, as of recording, there are, what, two approved vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna. Uh, both of which are, you know, Pfizer's begun rolling out, Moderna's set to roll out. We don't know how long it's going to take with 
to different supply lines there, how long it will take enough people to be vaccinated that things really start to shift. So there's a lot of question marks there, but that's at least positive sign. It's the mm -hmm. most positive sign we've had on the coronavirus front in several months at this point. So maybe that'll help us out by the time we get to the end of Q1 next year. And we're still waiting for word on government uh, assistance in terms of, you know, cold hard cash to cinemas. So that'll Absolutely. affect who's open when the vaccine does uh, does start to kind of reach that that critical mass. Right, right. And when is, I think Oscars, the Oscars will play a big part in starting that that marketing machine for movies coming out. It's, that's my gut, again, with that, that caveat that the vaccine is going well. The Oscars in 2021 to honor movies from quote unquote 2020 uh, have been pushed quite a bit later than usual rather than taking place in Q1. They are going to be in April. It's uh, the date is set for April 25th. So like you said, that does seem like kind of a, you know, it's, it's next year's movie version of the all-star break in a way. It's like, okay, every, here's where we know where the standings are. Here's where we know how things are going and and maybe that'll be the point where everybody really determines what the rest of the year looks like. Uh, unfortunately, April 25th feels like a very long way away right now. December 25th feels like a very long way away. <laughs> well, I guess we can only take it a day at a time. Uh, of course, in, in close solidarity for all our exhibition partners listening to us and reading us every day over at boxofficepro.com. Thank you again uh, for tuning in to this week's episode. And once again, this episode was brought to you by QSC, which announces the expansion of the QSIS ecosystem for audio, video, and control with the new cost-effective Core Nano and Core 8 Flex processors. Far beyond a conventional cinema processor, the QSIS is a complete ecosystem that allows you to control and monitor audio and video content delivery just about anywhere throughout your cinema complex. Visit qsc.com slash podcast for more information. Now, this episode was created by Daniel Luria, Rebecca Polly, Sean Robbins, and me, Russ Fisher. As Daniel said, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for sticking with us throughout this year. It's been a difficult year for everyone. It is going to continue to be tough, but we are all here uh, with you, and we've been proud to hear your stories and tell your stories this year, and uh, it's been a tremendous thing to have you all listening and to get to do this podcast every week uh, or most every week with uh, Daniel, Sean, and Rebecca. This has been terrific, so thanks to all of you. Thank you.